Okay, good morning again. I, I hope that you'll bear with me this morning because uh, it wasn't until about nine o'clock last night that I found out that I needed to fill in um, because uh, Kyle, Kyle's family, well, their kids came down with COVID. Kim, Kim already had it like two weeks ago. So bear with me as this is not very polished. And uh, thankfully, Kyle did send me notes and that really, really helped. Uh, he sent me uh, a lot, a lot, pretty almost like a manuscript. So thank you, Kyle. And any questions can go to Kyle. Just kidding. Um, let's, so yeah, to, by way of introduction, this is the third week of our new Sunday School series on the threefold office of Christ. Can anyone tell me what the threefold office of Christ is? What three offices he fulfills? Prophet, priest, and king. Good job, A+. Plus. Um, so this, I also want to say this series, we're following the outline of a book by Dr. Richard Belcher called Prophet, Priest, and King, A Biblical Theology of the Offices of Christ. So in the next, um, we still got 14 or so weeks of this, we're going to be defining the Old Testament role and significance of prophets, priests, and kings for the purpose of seeing how Jesus perfectly fulfills each of these roles in our salvation. And then I'm, I'm really excited about this, honestly. We're also going to get to see the implications for the church, for us today. So that's coming up in the next weeks. This week and next week, we're in the chapter on the role of prophet in the Old Testament. And, and I think next week, actually maybe not yet next week, but after that, we're going to talk about Christ as prophet. So this approach of prophet, priest, and king is something that the church has thought about for many years, um, even as early as I think the third or fourth century. Um, it was being talked about, or the work of Christ was thought of in these terms. And Calvin especially kind of standardized this, this way of approaching, uh, thinking about Christ's mediation. Um, did Angel and Natalie come? No. Aw. Aw, what happened? Did uh, I get COVID or something? Like, oh, uh, okay. Hey, Isabel. Hey, Layla. Um... <laughs> Our friends were going to come, but they couldn't make it, I guess. So that's a bummer. Um, got sidetracked. Sorry. So, uh, can anyone remember? I made this comment a couple weeks ago uh, about why the threefold office of Christ was important to John Calvin. Can anyone remember what, what I said? Um, actually, I don't know if any of you were here. Never, never mind. Di completely different audience. <laughs> I wanted to bring it up again, though, because John Calvin, uh, not only did he do a lot of, uh, put a lot of thought in this area, but it was, it was for good reason. He, he, the threefold office of Christ was important to him because in it, he believed that faith could find a more firm basis for salvation and thus to rest in Christ. That through understanding how Christ fulfills each of these offices, 
for us and on our behalf in his work as a mediator, that strengthens our faith and our assurance of salvation in Christ, our assurance of deliverance from the power of sin, the penalty of sin, and, and finally, in the new heavens and new earth, the, even the presence of sin. And so I, I think that's really beautiful and really helpful because this is not just a theological exercise. This is for our joy in Christ. So I hope, I hope that is encouraging. Um, prophets, priests, and kings were the anointed leaders among God's people in the Old Testament, Israel. And so I think it's only fitting that the Messiah, which literally means the anointed one, that the Messiah would embrace all of these offices in his person. So, how does Christ act as a mediator between us and God? He acts as our prophet, priest, and king. Good job, Isabel. To get started, you can go ahead and look at your notes. I wanted us to read together the questions and the answers on the first page. Um, because I think this will help orient us and give a summary also of where we're going. Um, and then we'll have some time to reflect. But we're going to start with uh, Spurgeon's Baptist Catechism. And I want to read the question. I'm going to read all. Yeah, we're going to read all these together. I'm going to read the question. And then I'd love all of you together to read the answer. And as you read, try to meditate and think about what it means that Christ fulfills each of these offices. So I'll read the question, you read the answers. So question 22, what offices, oh, and by the way, when you're reading the answers, you don't have to read the, uh, the scripture references. Um, so what offices does Christ execute as our redeemer? Christ as our redeemer executes the offices of a prophet, of a priest, and of a king. Both, Both in his state, state of humiliation and exaltation. How does Christ execute the office of a prophet? Christ executes the office of a prophet in revealing to us by his word and spirit the will of God and our salvation. Amen. We need that. <clears throat> How does Christ execute the office of a priest? Praise God. How does Christ execute the office of a king? Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. Amen. Thank you, guys. So next, we're going to read the Children's Catechism. And oh, it's, a, uh, I guess, Westminster Children's Catechism. I, I love this because... It's so simple, yet I feel like every time I read some of a children's catechism, I'm like, man, this is, this is great for me. I, and so I, I love how I think even, even as adults, we can benefit so much from the simple way it breaks these things down. Um, so I'm going to read these next three questions, and y'all can, can read the answers like before. Christian, why do you need Christ as a prophet? 
I need Christ as a prophet because I do not know the will of God for salvation. Christian, why do you need Christ as a priest? I need Christ as a priest because my sin separates me from God. And Christian, why do you need Christ as a king? I need Christ as a king because I am weak and helpless. Amen. We are weak and helpless. It's, it's so simple yet so true. And I think sometimes it's really helpful to just say it. Because we, we, our, our flesh wants to act like we're not weak and helpless. But that distracts us from our need for Christ and from his sufficiency for us. So, yeah, thank you for, for reading those. Before we move on, I, I want to know what... Is there anything that sticks out to you from what we just read? Anything that encourages you? Thank you for sharing. Yeah, it's that that is I, I agree. I'm I'm the same way. Because when I think of Christ as priest, I just think of him as the sacrifice, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. But that is his I mean, looking at question twenty two, that is his office of priest in his humiliation. But he also fulfills the office of priest in his exaltation, even now. And, and that is seen in how he continually intercedes for us. So, yeah, thank you for bringing that out. Anyone else before I move on? I like in um, 25, um, talking about him as our king, the first part that says, um, in subduing us to himself. Mm. It's not just like subduing us, but it's like to himself into relationship. I just like the to himself mm. part. Yeah. Yeah, amen. Chino, did you have something? Yeah, I had a question. Yeah, go for it. I was trying to understand yeah. um, exactly how Christ intercedes for us. I understand he died for our sins. And um, is that itself the intercession? But he's continually interceding because that death um, and his humiliation is so powerful that it keeps us interceding with God because it gives us a relationship with him. Mm. That's a really good question. Like, um, what does interceding mean? The continual intercession, I think, is what he's yeah. asking. Yeah. Like, how is he continually interceding for us as believers in him? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, well, let me go to Hebrews 7 real quick. Um, yeah, so Hebrews 7.25 says, it's talking about how he is an eternal priest. <clears throat> And Hebrews 7.25 says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And let's see. Yeah, I think 
I mean, is part of your question, like, since he died for us to take away our sins, why would he also need to intercede for us? Or is that not necessarily... Okay, sorry. You're saying, what does it mean that he intercedes for us? Yeah. Like, yeah. Maybe, like, pr- he's praying. He's praying for us. Yeah. The Father. As, like, a mediator is how I would put it shortly. Yeah, that, that's good. I, I think you're right. Um, is it because he's resurrected, so mm. he continually... Yeah. Yeah, that's right. He praise God. He he rose again and he he was he was here on earth for like 40 days after that, but then he ascended. And and so he's currently he is ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father. Okay. And part of what he's doing um as we know from from Hebrews is as he's ruling and reigning, he's also continually interceding for us. And I think Anna gave a good definition of that. Oh, that's great. Um, yeah, that's a really good question. Is that is that help for now? Yeah, sure. Okay, thank you. That's really good. I, I, think, I think it's uh, helpful to think of it too in terms of like sanctification too. I think that's mm. what Hebrews seven twenty five is getting at. It will save to the uttermost. So mm. not just not just saving us. Okay, now we have our get out of hell free card, but mm. actually, you know, increasing in our holiness and growing closer to the triune God. Mm. Um, you know, not just like okay, we're saved and now we can you know, go do whatever, but continually saving us in, the term, in terms of these sanctifying us, making us more. Mm. That's so good. That's why I need you guys. Um, <laughs> yeah, thank you, Matthew. I, yeah, if, you know, salvation, just getting out of hell, just being saved from the penalty of sin. If we were still left in slavery to sin, that is not a full salvation. Because sin, is, sin is, leads to nothing but misery and enslavement. And so... Yeah, that's really helpful what you said, Matthew, the distinction between, you know, justification and sanctification. Like, as he intercedes for us to, as we, as we fight sin, as we seek to persevere in the faith and, and live in this fallen and broken world, still waiting for the return of Christ and the consummation of our salvation that's already guaranteed, but it's not yet fully experienced. And going, and going back to Calvin and others, like you from mm-hmm. That would be a really powerful tool against Rome because they mm. would have a very different answer to who is, you know, who's a priest. Mm. They, they still have a what they think is a priesthood. Mm. So, you know, we're showing that, like Hebrews says, you know, Christ is, Christ is a better prophet, he's a better priest, he's a better king. You know, we had all these types throughout the Old Testament, but Christ fulfills all of those, and we, we don't need an earthly priest because Christ is fulfilled. Mm. Yeah, amen. Thank you. Really good. Um, Thank you guys. So we're going to move on and you can go ahead and flip your note sheet over. And this is, this is the outline that we're now going to go through. Um, so we're going to talk about what the role of prophet in the Old Testament looked like. And the first thing we can say, I think the most simple way to summarize this is that the work of the prophet centered on God's word and prayer. God's word and prayer. And this was needed because ever since Genesis 3, when we first fell into sin, when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, disobeying God, um, becoming a curse, uh, we have been separated from God's presence. And along with this separation, of course, it is difficult to hear his voice. We are completely dependent on God to reveal himself to us. We, we need him to do that. We can't 
can't do that. We can't make that happen ourselves. We need him to reveal himself, and yet our sin makes it hard. Our sin makes it impossible to listen to him when he does reveal himself. This is because in our, our human nature, we desire to make our own decisions of what's right and wrong for ourselves. And so we want to be our own gods in that way. We want to, to be our own arbiters of truth and what's right and wrong. This is our condition apart from God's grace. But in incredible mercy and compassion, God does not leave humanity in a state of confusion. And he sets out to restore what was lost at the fall, even though we did deserve to lose all of it. Yet he is, he is restoring He's restoring things, and this restoration, of course, must include being able to hear his word. This restoration, therefore, includes defining the role of a prophet within the nation of Israel. So now we're going to talk more about what exactly a prophet is so that we can see how, in in coming weeks, we're going to see how Christ fulfills this role perfectly, and then how God's people, after Christ, participate in the prophetic aspect of handling his word. So that's going to be really helpful too. Um, we're not going to read it yet, but you can already, you can turn to Deuteronomy 18 because that's, that's the main passage we're going to be in. The context of this chapter is that life in the promised land, in the land of Canaan, is being depicted. And laws given to Israel in the old covenant are, are, being, are, are being laid out. And specifically in the, in the preceding chapters, God is already laying out major categories of leadership for Israel. He's talking about the priests and the judges in Deuteronomy 17. Um, he's talking about kings in Deuteronomy 17. And then Deuteronomy 18, he, he defines uh, a little bit for us the role of prophet. Um, it's also really interesting that right before uh, he talks about the role of prophet, he, he talks about a bunch of wrong ways to receive guidance from the Lord. So Deuteronomy 18, 9 through 14, you can kind of look as I'm talking. Um, It it gives the context of wrong ways for guidance and for finding God's will. Basically, what what unites all the ways listed, there's um, child sacrifice, divination, telling fortunes, interpreting omens, sorcery, um, necromancy, all of these things. What all of them have in common is that they are pagan and occult ways of trying to discern the future or even control, control things, control outcomes. So a helpful article I looked at um, helped me kind of connect the dots. It, it, was, it was saying more about why these things are wrong. And Jeremiah 14, 14 is helpful there. It says... In speaking of false prophets, it says, they are prophesying to you a lying vision, worthless divination, and the deceit of their own minds. And so I think, I think from this verse, we see that part of the reason that divination is wrong, or, or any of these practices, is not just some arbitrary rule, but it's because compared to God's truth, all of, all of these other means of finding truth are false, deceitful, and worthless. I also, I also uh, 
it was brought, um, I was reminded of in Acts when Paul and Silas are traveling and they, they meet in Acts 16, they meet a slave girl. She had a spirit of divination, it says, and she was getting, she was uh, making a lot of money for her owners through fortune telling. Um, yet what, what happens is Paul exercises a demon from her and that makes the owners angry. But, but anyway, the, it seems like her, she was able to probably do some kind of fortune telling. She was right sometimes, but yet that didn't make it, that didn't make it a good thing. That didn't make it a God ordained thing. And she was actually demon possessed. And so I think that it's, it's helpful to realize that divination is, is taught to be a sin in God's word. And again, this is not because the spirit world is fake, um, but it's because it is real and, and it's not innocent because any spirit that is not the Holy Spirit or, or angels, they're actually evil spirits. And so divination is, is to be avoided um, and we, we, are not, we do not need to fear evil spirits but we do not need to seek wisdom from them either as our wisdom comes from the Lord. And I think that another thing is that these are all illegitimate means for receiving divine knowledge. Um, God, as Lord, he gets to dictate the terms. He gets, to, um, he gets to choose what to reveal to us and what not to and how that is to be done. And so... These things are, are wrong because God has not given them to us. And uh, Deuteronomy 29, 29 is also helpful here. Would someone be able to flip there real quick and read it? Deuteronomy 29, 29. Who can read that? Thank you. The secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. Good. Any thoughts as to why I would bring up that verse right now? What, what, is, what does this verse maybe have to do with what we're talking about? Absolutely. Anything else? I was going to ask a question about um, the difference between divination and prophecy from the Lord. Mm -hmm. And I think this actually answers it, answers it because, um, like you said, I guess the secret um, is not really for everyone, like you said. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. um, it's for the people that God has called to himself. Mm. Right? I mean, I, I'm yeah. Yeah, no, that's a good question. I mean, I think one thing I would say about the difference between divination and prophecy is that, you know, all, all the things in Deuteronomy 18, it's, it's uh, practices that were pursuing these things. Um, it was, they're trying to do things to like manipulate the gods into revealing things to them or even manipulate the gods into making things work in their favor. And so it's all these manipulative practices, whereas prophecy is, is us receiving from God. 
we no one no one says I want to be a prophet when I grow up. Instead, it's it's God is the one who sets sets them apart. God is the one who chooses them, and God is the one who chooses when and how to reveal His word to them. I mean, in Acts, it was the evil spirit that was possessing that woman that was mm-hmm. giving the secrets of God without His permission. So it was evil. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if uh, I don't know if it would be correct to think of it as the evil spirit giving the secrets of God necessarily, but but the evil spirit was likely able to at least give something that people wanted. Um, you know, I don't know how accurate her fortune telling was, but you know, I mean, we're easily duped. Like it, it might have not. Or sorry, what did you say? Oh, they, the, the owners were upset because they were making money. Exactly. Fortune yeah, they were really, exactly. They were upset because they were making money. But I still don't know if that necessarily means that her fortune telling was like super uh, precise. Um, or, and, cer- and certainly not that it was, uh, be, be, just, just because, uh, I mean, we're easily duped. And it could have been she was just saying really vague things that were true and people were loving it. And, Wanted to purchase that, um, but I'm I'm not really sure. I would have to like look into that more. Um, so I I hope that's helpful. It is because okay. it's possibly it could have been a scam. Yeah, or it could have been like kind of like like a pseudo scam. Like maybe there was a, like she was you know she was possessed by an evil spirit, and those evil spirits like they know more than us these demons, but it doesn't mean that they were like giving like perfect infallible divine knowledge either. So maybe like a spectrum. Does that kind of help? Yes. One last question. Yeah. For us as believers, the secrets of God, uh, I guess if we stay in the word, we'll know the difference between the evil spirit giving us div- divination mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. versus if it's coming from God. Yeah, I would say so. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. God's word is our objective standard because like anything that, you know, anything in my head or like my experiences or a dream I might have, like all those things are, you know, it, it's so subjective, um, but it's God's word um, that is our our infallible standard. And along with that, like it's important to, to also be rooted to like the church and understand how the church has thought about these things. Because if I understand God's word in a completely different way, uh, than, than like the church has ever understood it, then that's also kind of dangerous footing, even if I'm thinking that I'm based in God's word. Um, would anyone add anything to that though? Because these are really good questions and my answers are by no means uh, adequate. Would anyone add anything to an answer to his question? Well, I, I was thinking about um, Galatians. Paul uh, says in Galatians, uh, who has bewitched you um, if I or an angel come preaching another gospel mm. may they be a curse that assumes that they understand the gospel clearly and that they're able to discern something that is a counterfeit mm. and so there is a there's a focus there on um, he, he, again he assumes that if someone comes preaching something that's different than what they've learned from the apostles then they're going to be able to discern that and um, also I think it's uh, in the New Testament where it says uh test every spirit to see whether it was, in, in the context of prophecy, to see whether mm-hmm. it was from God. Um, you, you test the, the spirit of something um, by being familiar with the word of God. Right? So um, the word of God is the authentic 
and things that are deviations. Even Satan, when he came to Adam and Eve, he didn't say something uh, clearly outlandish. It was mostly true mm. with some tweaks. And so I think that's a lot of the times how um, mm. these these um, deceptions work, right? It's, it's, it's not yeah. always so clear. Sometimes it takes uh, a discerning eye and spirit to be able to see, okay, where is this off? But we sharpen our powers of discernment, as it says in Hebrews, by studying the word of God. So um, God does tell us to be discerning, but he tells us to have our discernment sharpened by the sort of uh, stone of the word of God on the sword of mm. our ability to rightly divide mm. the word truth. Mm. Uh, I would just add that. Mm. Thank you so much. That's good. Yeah, great question. We are going to talk a little bit more in a second about discerning um, these things. So, yeah, I, last thing I want to say about 2929 is just this, this speaks also to the sufficiency of God's revelation. God has given to us all that we need, and we don't need to worry about trying to figure out, you know, what, where am I supposed to move or what job am I supposed to get? Um, God has not. God doesn't hold us responsible to figuring these things out. Instead, we can seek to obey His revealed will and seek to seek wise counsel, seek to be wise, informed by the Bible, and then be free to make decisions. Yeah. What I was going to say about twenty nine, twenty nine was something along yeah. those lines. I know a few people who read their horoscopes daily and mm. basically like look to that to see what their day is going to be like. I even know people that go to fortune tellers like in today's mm-hmm. day and age yeah. to try and find out what they're going to do with their life. But I get from this is that God's already revealed that to us and it's almost even more encouraging. Like He's already revealed that to us and it belongs to us mm. and to our children. Yeah. We can pass that on. We don't have to seek other things to know about what our life's going to be mm. like tomorrow. And that, and that helps us to trust the Lord yeah. more and more. Yeah, amen. It would be very stressful if we were held accountable to somehow figure out, you know, all these random providential things. Like, what route do I need to take to work tomorrow so that I don't, so that I avoid this mishap? Or, uh, yeah, who, it, you could go down so many rabbit trails. And I think one other thing to point out is the end of verse 29 is uh, the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children, not just so that we can feel special but that we may do all the words of this law and that that is the emphasis of that that verse all right so we are now finally going to read deuteronomy 18 15 through 22 who would be able to nice and loud read that for us Thank you. Deuteronomy 18. Yeah, Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 through 22. This is the definition of a prophet. Okay. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is him, and to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Parab on the day of the assembly, when you said... Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see his great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, 
and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I commanded him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that shall that he shall speak to them in my name, I myself will require of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, How may we know that how may we know the Lord sorry, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. Thank you. Good. So we're gonna we're gonna spend most of the rest of this time diving more into that. But first I wanna say that I think the most simple way to summarize this is that a prophet is someone who speaks the words that God gives him to speak. So this passage portrays a prophet as God's spokesman. And it's also helpful to realize that God's words are not just being placed in the prophet's head, but it says in verse 18, I will put my words in his mouth. And that's, that's significant because if, if we thought that God just kind of gave people some divinely inspired thoughts that they then communicated, then we couldn't really know that that was infallible because it started out inspired maybe in the head in some way, but then was communicated through an imperfect person lacking knowledge in all sorts of ways. And so in order for it to be divine revelation in the sense we're talking about right now in this passage, everything down to the last word in detail must be true. So the prophet doesn't just receive stuff in his mind. He actually speaks divine revelation. Um, Richard Belcher also pointed out that in verses 15 and 19, uh, where it says, uh, it is to him you shall listen in 15 and in 19, Whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Belcher said that these show that the prophet's words will be canonical. It's, he, it's saying that we are accountable. God's people are accountable to what the prophet says. A helpful connection um, in talking about these things is Second Peter one twenty one. I'm just going to read that for us. You don't have to turn there. Um, but Second Peter one twenty one says, "For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit." So again, men spoke from God, and it was not produced by the will of man. It was not hey, I want to be a prophet tomorrow, or I want to be a prophet when I grow up. It was God, God revealed these things. God gave them these words. So could someone, looking especially at verses 15 and 16, or actually 16 and 17, why... Why did the people, or why, why did God appoint these prophetic mediators? Mm-hmm. 
supposed to like from the sky here this is the world, right? Yeah. Yeah, kind of. Because yeah, that's that's pretty much what was happening at, at Sinai. Um, they were terrified. <laughs> yeah. Were there churches at this time? Because I would just, I mean, I don't know much about the Bible, maybe as many of you do, but I would assume that the people had God's word and they were messing it up. So he sent a prophet to speak it. So not only can you see it and read it, but you can also hear it. Mm. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, Is he asking if there is a church in Deuteronomy? I think so. Yeah, like when, yeah, I mean... Basically, this was, this was the church. The people of Israel, as God's chosen people, they wore the church of that day. Okay. Yeah. I think I got it. I think I yeah. read uh, somewhere that prophecy was meant to comfort the believers. Yeah. So I mean, maybe pro- that's yeah. why God gave prophets the ability to speak his word. To yeah. comfort everyone who are here that believe in him. To glorify him and really show you that he means what he said I yeah no that's good yeah I, I'm gonna it's like you're reading my notes bro but uh, I, I am gonna I'm gonna talk about that a little bit more that's oh, okay. good yeah yeah good thoughts but and yeah from your question you were asking like why did he not just speak directly to them why did he give them mediator oh yeah and a prophet right and like it says like it says in verse 16 um they didn't want to hear the voice of the Lord they felt like they would die. It mm-hmm. was so terrifying. Yeah. So, yeah, like you just said, it was just kind of... Yeah. Yeah, they were terrified. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and God God says they are right in what they have spoken. It's like God agrees, yeah, I'm really holy, and these people are often so wayward, they need a mediator. <laughs> they need you, Moses. So... So that is, the, that is part of the context of, of when he says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. Um, I want to talk about false prophets real quick. Um, oh, for, I guess the summary statement, though, is that the prophet, we're, we're seeing already, the prophet takes on the role of a gracious mediator. And so... The prophet, and Moses is a great example of this, the prophet is standing between God and the people. He's uh, representing God to the people, and he's representing the people to God. And he's delivering to them the word of the Lord. So let's talk about false prophets, and I hope this this helps, Chino, with some of your your thoughts. Um, The prophet scenario can go wrong in two different ways. So one way is that the people may not listen to the prophet. Um, And so God answers that with verse 19, where he says, I myself will require it of him. God will hold anyone who does not listen to his word accountable and responsible for rejecting his word. And the consequences here in Deuteronomy, here in the context of Israel, is given clearly in Deuteronomy 27 and 28. There were curses of the covenant given for their disobedience. Another way that this scenario could go wrong is that someone might claim to be a prophet, 
but not be. Or a prophet might not accurately speak God's word as given to him. And so Deuteronomy 18 identifies a couple ways this could happen. First, um, look at verse 20. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. So first, a prophet might speak a word in God's name when God has not commanded him to. In this situation, even though the prophet's claiming to speak for God, it's a false claim. But second, and again, we see this in verse 20, a prophet might also speak in the name of a God other than Yahweh. And in this case, his authority is found in a false God. Also a problem. And so now look at how God tells his people to respond. Actually, before we, before we talk about that, go to Deuteronomy 13. I want to just complicate things a little bit more. Could someone real, real loud uh, read 13, 1 through 5? If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says... Let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice, and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. Okay, you can stop there. Thank you. What's going on here? Yeah. Yeah, this is kind of scary. And this is a this is a third scenario of how this could go wrong, but 13 1 through 5 is saying false prophets may even be able to at times do signs and wonders. They may even be able to um, tell you correctly what is going to come to pass. But if with that they're contradicting God's word in any way, most clearly if they're if they're telling you to go after other gods and to serve other gods then you shall not listen to anything they say god is testing you and so that's that's important to be aware of and it and it goes back to like what is our authority we are not we are not called to interpret experiences like oh this person like did this this miraculous thing therefore i can trust him we're, we're called to have god's word as our standard so we don't need to to get into the whole interpretation of of what we perceive um we have god's sure revelation and that is comforting um so let, i want to talk about the two responses given in Deuteronomy 18 to false prophets. First, it says a false prophet deserves to die. And this might sound harsh, but I want to stress that Israel was set apart. God's people were to have no wickedness tolerated because it jeopardized their relationship with God. 
And so this was, this was a measure of gracious protection. A false prophet would lead God's people astray to their demise. And it's serious. And today in the church, just to, to bridge things over, the response to a persistent and unrepentant false prophet is not still death, or is not to, to kill him, but it is excommunication. It is their removal from the church, which is even more serious in a sense because it's, it's saying this person is not one of God's. So whether now or then, the most serious of consequences is attached to presuming to speak for God when he has not spoken to you. The second response to the false prophet is formulated as a question. And so it's basically, um, if the word of the prophet speaks in the name of Yahweh, or if the word that the prophet speaks in the name of Yahweh does not come true, then the prophet has spoken presumptuously. So they're given a test. Uh, they're, they're told in verse 21 that if the word that they speak does not come to pass, then boom, you know it's not of God. So does, does anyone have any questions before I go on to the next section? Is this also, I mean, the story of the time, this is also mm-hmm. an indication that we're talking about how prophets used to work in the Old Testament, not necessarily mm-hmm. how now mm-hmm. prophets of modern prophets, question marks, right? You know? Right. Yeah, good question. And yes, it's just we're focusing in on the prophetic role in the Old Testament. Um, But we will talk more about that, I think, in the coming weeks. So, good. All right, I'm going to move on. So, Deuteronomy 18 is really significant as a passage that points to the coming of Christ. And I think whether we interpret it as a collective some some people would take the the reference in 18 verse 18 i will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers some would take that to refer to kind of all the prophets of israel the true prophets um of whom christ is the ultimate fulfillment while others would say no prophet there is singular that's just straight up more directly referring to Jesus. Either way, it's still, everyone agrees that this is still ultimately fulfilled in Christ. And I think this is really cool because Jesus, I think at least indirectly alludes to this in John chapter five. So I'm I'm gonna read, I'm gonna read chapter five, verse 45 to 47 real quick. Um, Jesus is is, uh, in a discussion with the religious leaders and it's getting uh, a little tense. And um, so, sorry, to ju- we're jumping in at the end of his conversation, but, but he says in verse 45, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? 
So right here, Jesus is saying explicitly, Moses wrote of me. And I don't limit, I don't think we need to limit that to just a verse like 1818, because I think that Moses wrote of Christ in many other ways, uh, typological ways, ways of foreshadowing Christ. Uh, Christ is all throughout the law and the prophets because he is the fulfillment of Israel, the fulfillment of the temple, the fulfillment of sacrifices. Um, so we don't need to limit it to that. Yet, I think at the same time, it certainly, when he talks about Moses writing of him, he very well could have had this exact reference in mind as the foremost example. So any questions or thoughts on that before we move on? Wow, time is flying. I thought we had a lot of time left. Um, so I want to, we need to wrap up. I, I want to just, uh, I just want to summarize one more thing. We're going to have more time to talk about this in, co- in the coming weeks, but the message of prophets was basically twofold. They were proclaiming both judgment and hope. And I also want to point out that when we think of prophecy, we usually think of like fortune telling or telling the future. And that was part of it. But more than anything, it was a, that people say it wasn't that they were so much foretelling as much as they were foretelling the law that God had already given. They were expounding upon the covenant that God had already given to his people. Um, they were warning them. And, uh, and so Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, um, in uh, 11.6, God says to him, Proclaim all these words in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. Hear the words of this covenant and do them. It's like, Jeremiah, what are you doing? You're supposed to tell them what's going to happen to them the next week. No, that's, that's not how prophecy usually worked. He was expounding the covenant um, and telling them to obey hear the words of this covenant and do them. And I also think it's, um, it's helpful to see the, the twofold nature of prophecy to both, uh, both give words of judgment and warning, but also to give words of hope. Um, we see that throughout the prophets of the Old Testament. Um, they both testified of the coming day of the Lord, the day of the Lord's wrath, but at the same time, their messages had were tinged with hope saying ultimately god will save his people ultimately he will have mercy and so i love how that's kind of summarized in in a seed form in uh, jeremiah 1 verse 10 where he says the lord says to him i have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down to destroy and to overthrow to build and to plant So he both has a destructive aspect of his mission. He's judging. He's he's plucking up, destroying, overthrowing. But he also has a constructive aspect. He's building and planting, building them up um, in hope. So we are so pressed for time. Uh, I just want to – so I want to end saying that, again, all of this should point us to – our need for a savior because as we said at the beginning our, the fall in the garden when sin entered the world it that broke 
like we we are all in Adam spiritually dead, unable to know relate to God outside of Christ. And outside of Christ, even if we hear God's word, we're not even going to want to obey it. So we need more than just a prophet like Moses or a prophet like Elijah or a prophet like Isaiah who's going to tell us, uh, who's going to remind us of our obligations. Um, We need more than a prophet like Jeremiah who's going to warn us of the coming judgment. We need a prophet who can also fix the fundamental problem of sin in our hearts. And so that's, we're going to get to expound that a lot more in the coming weeks, which I'm excited about. Um, But let's keep that in mind as we think about these things and let our exposition of these categories stir in us a a desire and a thankfulness for Christ. Um, So we need to, we need to close in a second, but does anyone have a quick question or a quick thought that they'd like to share before I pray? Saying since you every time you were talking about Moses from within the people, there's gonna be a prophet. And ultimately the the command to do exactly as God says in so that you know that you're a prophet <coughs> is ultimately what caused Moses entering into the promised land mm. with the water mm. and the rocks. You know, God told him to speak to the rocks. I mean he was used mm. to you know hitting the rocks all the time to get water, and this one time God tells him, Hey, speak to the rocks. And he hit the rock, right? Yeah. Water came out. Still, it came, was the will of God for water to come out of the people. Yeah. But that, you will think of like, wow, he made a mistake or whatever. But that <coughs> degree of, I guess, exactitude God demanded of wow. the that he ultimately wasn't able to enter the, the wow. promised land because of that. So that's kind of yeah. how interesting it is to see that God, you know, first of all, no, don't trust anybody else that comes from any other lands. Only the prophet that will come from within you. But also know that the standard is pretty high. But if you yeah. don't, yeah. it's consequences. So. Yeah, seriously. That's terrifying. It's, yeah, we can mishandle God's word in all sorts of ways today. So good to take you to that and, and yeah, be humbled by that. Thank you guys. I'm going to pray and, uh, and y'all will be dismissed. Father, thank you for this time we had uh, to learn more about your word and and more about the role of prophet um, and what you've done for us in Christ. I pray that as we go uh, to corporate worship, please would you uh, clear our minds, uh, give us alertness and attentiveness, and uh, help, uh, help our worship to be acceptable to you and pleasing to you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.